We're going to be beginning this morning a series of sermons through the book of Esther, preaching chapter by chapter. Esther, if you're not familiar with where it is in the biblical canon, it is at the end of the historical books, after the Samuels, the Kings, the Chronicles, and Ezra, Nehemiah, then Esther, just before the poetic books. We'll be looking at this book of the Bible for the next several weeks, next few months. Please give your full attention to the Word of God. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles of the governors and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. In the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahumen, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abiktha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Sethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior shall, will be made known to all women causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. 
This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people." When my wife and I started having children, our first two babies were boys, and of course we had that conversation about what shall we name them. And my wife pushed hard, those first two births, she pushed hard to name one of our boys after me. Call him Daniel, Daniel Jr., Daniel, whatever. And I resisted strongly. And uh, I mostly won that battle. Our second son has my name, Daniel, as a middle name, but uh, neither one of them got it as their main name. But I, my resistance to that was mostly on pragmatic uh, basis. I just didn't want the confusion in my household that I'd seen in other households. When you say Dan or Daniel, who are you talking to? Which Dan are you referring to? I just didn't want to live with that the rest of my life. Lo and behold, one of my daughters grew up and married a Dan, so every time, every time they come to visit, that complication is there whether I wanted it or not. I think we have a similar problem with the name God in our culture. When someone refers to God, it's just not specific enough, is it? 200 years ago, even 100 years ago, if somebody in our culture said God, we would assume that they were talking about the God of the Bible. But these days, when they say the name God, they could be referring to any one of a thousand different deities. It's led me to think that maybe it would be wise for me when I talk about God out in public circles to use the name Yahweh. That's the Hebrew name for God, the Old Testament name for God. It's the personal name that God gave to Moses. Remember at the burning bush when Moses said, who shall I say has sent me? And he said, tell them Yahweh, I am that I am. And it really became his personal name for his covenant people. It's the name one of the reasons I love the name Yahweh so much is it's the name that's associated with the covenant of grace. Those whom God has bound to himself by the covenant of grace in the Old Testament, that covenant name for him, the name of the bride of the Old Testament church for the groom of the Old Testament church was Yahweh. And so I've always liked that name, and it's always felt uh, it's a shame that I don't feel comfortable using it in public when I talk about God, because it would get all kinds of strange looks. The book of Esther is written for people like us, Yahweh's people, Yahweh's covenant people who live as sojourners and aliens and exiles in a foreign land and a pagan culture where people use the name God, but they don't mean the God of the Bible. 
Esther is a very unique book among all the books of the Bible. You're not going to come across another book like it. It feels very much like a secular book, like a story that you find in some secular history. There's no prayer mentioned anywhere in the book, no religious rituals, no worship, no prophets, no visions, no word from the Lord. The Lord seems to be absent from the book as though he's not involved in any way. In fact, the book doesn't even use the name of God. None of the names of God appear in the book. God's not mentioned in the book at all. The story, interestingly, is told from an entirely human perspective, horizontal. Remember when we talked a couple years ago about the book of Ecclesiastes, we said that the whole book of Ecclesiastes is written from the perspective of one who only sees things under the sun, without God in the equation. And on first glance and first reading, that's what Esther seems to be, a book without God. Esther is actually, as I mentioned in the Sunday school class before this, we're, we're in our adult Sunday school, we're looking at a, a biblical view of the arts and entertainment. And I said there that Esther, of all the books of the Bible, Esther is a great work of art. The whole, book, the whole Bible is a great work of art, but Esther stands out in a special way. Those who are experts in literature will look at the book of Esther and say, that's great storytelling. Storytelling is an art. And Esther is great storytelling. It has a very engaging plot. It has surprising twists and reversals. It shows a skillful use of irony and satire and humor. And what I love about it is it communicates its main messages in a very subtle, indirect way, but effective way because of it. Like all great art, the message comes to you gradually as you get wrapped up in the characters and get wrapped up in the story, all of a sudden you, the lights turn on and you realize, what's God saying to me through this book? That's one of my complaints, as I've mentioned already in the class and will mention again. And my, one of my great complaints about Christian art or Christian arts and entertainment over the last kept several decades is that it is not great art most of the time. There are some exceptions, and praise God for the exceptions. But most of the time, and one of the problems is the way it gets its messages across. If it's telling the truth, and often there, there's, there's often a problem in Christian art that, the, that they're not reflecting the scriptures accurately, but when they are, they don't do it subtly. They don't do it skillfully. They don't do it artistically. They tend to hit you over the head with the message. And that's not art. It may be communication, but it's not art. As we read the book of Esther and we get caught up in the story over the coming weeks, we're going to gradually discover a lot of truth, spiritual truth, even though it doesn't speak in direct spiritual terms. And what we're going to find, I think the greatest surprise of the entire book is that even though God is not named, he's the main character in every scene of the story. Every scene of the story is about God and what he's doing in the midst of his people, and therefore in the midst of the world. And so the Lord's purpose for us, I believe, as we look at this first chapter, it certainly illustrates it, but it's going to look, look this way through the entire book. The purpose is to tell us, how do you and I, as people of Yahweh, people of the covenant, people who belong to God through his son, Jesus Christ, 
How do we remain faithful to him while living in exile? While living as a minority, a small voice among many pagan voices. The events that are recorded in the book of Esther took place around 480 BC. That's almost 500 years before Christ. As I said, even though Esther appears kind of almost in the middle of the Old Testament, it's actually telling us history that took place at the end of the Old Testament. It's the very last revelation given to us before that 400-year silent period between the end of the events of the Old Testament and the beginning of the events of the New Testament. To give you a, a, a broader context, Esther and Mordecai would have lived during the same general period of Confucius in the East or Socrates in the West, just to give you an orientation. The Babylonian exile at this point had ended 50 years earlier. We are in the midst of that great succession of world empires, starting with the Babylonian Empire. Of course, before that was the Assyrian Empire, but then the Babylonian Empire. Then the, the empire of the Medes and the Persians. Primarily, the Persians were the dominant, uh, in the end, uh, ethnic group of that empire, which then led to the Greek Empire and ultimately to the Roman Empire. And so we're in the midst of the Persian Empire. It was the, one of the first, one of the earliest Persian uh, rulers who released the Jewish people from their captivity, that 70 years of Babylonian exile. It was uh, Cyrus the Great who released them from their captivity and allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. And under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, they were able to rebuild the city, rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple. But they were all still very much under the rule of Persia. And what we don't think about very often is that there were many Jews who stayed in Persia. For whatever reason, they didn't go back with the exiles to Jerusalem and to the Promised Land, but they stayed in Persia. And it's those Jews that we'll be looking at in the book of Esther. It's interesting how the book of Esther opens. It's almost like a movie. A very detailed, vivid description of a party scene. And many movies will start like that. The first scene is a loud, long, and lavish party in the city of Susa, which is one of the four royal cities of Persia, four capital cities. And if you want a geographical orientation, Susa was uh, what would today be along the border of Iran and Iraq. We're immediately in this scene, we're immediately introduced to King Ahasuerus. Secular books, secular historical books will call him King Xerxes. I've been working on Ahasuerus all week and Xerxes trips me up. But his name was, in, in the, his, uh, his Greek name was Xerxes the Great. He was, in this era, the most powerful ruler in the, East, in the Western world. It says in the text here that he reigned from India to Ethiopia. Translating that into modern day geography, it's close, but it's not quite, doesn't quite line up with our, our boundaries of nations today. It actually would be more Pakistan, uh, north, northeast of India, what we now call India, would be the area of Pakistan all the way, this is the Persian Empire, from there all the way to North Africa to what today would be called Northern Sudan. So that's how much territory that he reigned over. And again, he was the most powerful ruler 
in the Western world. And so he throws this party, but it was no ordinary party. Did you notice how long it lasted? 180 days, six months. Now, of course, you know, it was what he did is he, he gathered military leaders, government officials, noblemen, all the movers and shakers of his, of his empire, and he brought them to Susa, one of his greatest cities, and he kept them there for six months to show them, as the text says, his, his, his pomp, his, his glory, his earthly majesty, all the wealth, and this must have been an amazing city. And the purpose was to bring all these key people, these leaders in all aspects of life from the empire, to bring them there that they would be so impressed with King Ahasuerus, that he would be, their loyalty to him would be strengthened. They'd be so impressed with him, they'd be very glad to be on his team, so to speak. That was the purpose of the feast. Well, it must have been a big success, and there must have been a lot of leftovers, because he has a week-long party after that, you know, six months of partying, and then it says he has a seven-day feast, but this one's more focused on the citizens, the leaders, and the citizens of Susa, the city, and they are invited into the inner circles of the palace. They're invited into the very gardens of the palace to have a one-week-long feast, and that's where the events of chapter one take place, is during that week-long feast. And it's interesting that there is vivid detail given of the palace gardens there. Talks about the white and purple curtains hanging between, off of silver rods hanging from marble pillars. Talks about gold and silver couches scattered around on a pavement made up of rare and precious stones. Talks about partygoers drinking wine, abundant wine, out of golden vessels of differing kinds, which is an indicator of vast wealth. That's what the wealth, the really wealthy people did, is they collected goblets to drink wine out of, made of gold, of course, of the best quality, but each one was different, and it was like a work of art. And, and the idea was that you could tell by somebody's wealth by how big their collection was and how excellent the artwork was of these goblets. But what's interesting then is that there's a funny detail then given in verse 8. It says, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. What does that mean? Well, if you look at the very next statement, it's clear what he meant is, basically to translate the rule, the rule for drinking is there are no rules. Everyone drank whatever they wanted. The king said, give them as much wine as they want, the best of wine that I have. Well, the scene then is set, and like every good story, there comes a conflict. There comes a crisis that has to be resolved. And that happens when the king got drunk. It says, when the heart of the king was merry with wine at the end of the seven days, he commanded his servants to bring his gorgeous wife, Cream Vashti, who obviously must have been one of the most beautiful women in the kingdom, if not the most beautiful, he sends his servants to go bring her to the palace garden so that I can show her off to all these men. Remember, it's all men because all the women were at Vashti's party. Bring her in as the only woman in the, in the garden so I can show off her great beauty. Why? For the same reason he showed off his city for the last six months. To show what a great guy he was. To show his glory. What a guy I am. I can get a woman like that. The, the ultimate quintessential trophy wife. Because to him, she was just another possession. He had the best palace. He had the best wine. 
and he had the most beautiful wife. And so he shows her off to gain their loyalty and their respect to show off his own glory. Well, that's where you get the first surprise, the first twist. There's, there's twists and surprises throughout the entire book. Here's one of the first ones. Here is a king who controlled 127 provinces under his iron fists, but he couldn't get his wife to come to the party. She refuses to come and be ogled by these men, these drunk, lustful men. And so the king's furious and he throws a tantrum. It says he consults with his wise men. It says, it, it describes them as wise men who knew the times, and that's just a euphemism for astrologers. In Persian culture, those were the wise men, the ones who looked to the stars to say what to do. And so he consults with them, and they expressed to him their fear that Vashti's insubordination would lead to an uproar, a, a, uproar, a, a revolt on the part of the women of society. Once they heard about what Vashti had done in defying the command, the edict of the king, then notice that their particular interest was their own wives. The wives of the officials are going to resist the authority of their husbands, and they won't do what they're told, and then it'll spread through the entire kingdom. They were worried about an unbridled feminism movement in Persia. And the king agrees with their advice. And his ego, his ego has been greatly damaged by this. And so he asserts himself and on their advice, he makes an irrevocable decree that Vashti will be forever banished from his presence. And the commentators actually point out the language there is careful. He didn't ever put to death, which would really show his authority. Maybe he didn't want to put her to death, but she's banished from his presence. For, she's never allowed to come into his presence again. She probably stayed in his harem is what the commentators think but never was in his presence, the king's presence, ever again. And then a decree went out to all the provinces of the entire Persian Empire that women are to obey their husbands. Now you start to see some of the subtle humor in all of this. First of all, you get the idea that Vashti being treated like she was, which I'm sure this wasn't the first time she was treat, treated like property, she probably wasn't all that sad to not ever be in the king's presence again, so the decree was probably a, a relief to her, I imagine. It's also ironic that they're so fearful that word is going to get out what Vashti did that what they do is they make a public edict that goes to all four corners of the empire that says that Vashti has been banished because of this. And, you know, so the whole empire is aware of what has happened. And then finally, the final irony is that the king is decreeing that all wives everywhere are to obey their husbands, but he can't get his own wife to obey him. That's what caused it. Anyway, all this just to say, at this point, at the end of chapter one, it's a very entertaining story. But what are we to learn from it? And I think we'll see three lessons, of course there's three, in this passage that are the themes of the entire book of the book of Esther. You're going to see this repeated, these themes repeated. I think it's what you see in chapter one is you're going to see through the entire book. First lesson. In order to be faithful as a, a follower of Yahweh, your covenant God, while living in exile in a culture and a land that does not know Yahweh, God's people must see from God's perspective. God's people must see 
the world, themselves, the people around them, their circumstances, they must see them from God's perspective. As we begin to read the story, we're impressed by the vast wealth and power of King Ahasuerus. But we're soon find ourselves laughing at him. Even before we get out of the first chapter, we're already laughing at him. And we're going to be laughing even harder at his right-hand man, Haman, in chapters to come. King Ahasuerus is shown to be weak in character and foolish from Scripture's perspective. He looks so glorious, so powerful. Everything that every man would want to be from the world's perspective, but from God's perspective, he's a fool. He can't make a decision. He, he leans on his stargazers to make decisions and he vacillates. He controls his empire, but he can't control his, his wife. He allows his ego to create a state crisis. He's a fool, all about his own glory. And he'll come to destruction. This whole book is a lesson in the upside down values of the kingdom of Yahweh. As Jesus taught in, in his kingdom, when Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, came, he taught us what his kingdom looks like. And he said, in my kingdom, the first are last and the last are first. The dictators who rule over empires are the last in the eyes of God. Humble Jews who serve Yahweh who are nothing in the eyes of the culture, are elevated to places of great honor. Contrary to the perspective of this world, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And the king of Persia will teach us that it doesn't consist in the abundance of his earthly power either. From God's perspective, we're going to look at this king, King Ohasuerus, and we will see that the emperor's new clothes are a mirage. That what he's boasting in has no substance in the eyes of God. In 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul tries to instill this upside-down perspective on the world to us when he says, beginning in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I think one of the biggest dangers for us as exiles and sojourners and aliens living in a foreign culture is for us to develop blind spots to our culture. Things that are honored and exalted and praised in this culture seen as not only acceptable but good, but in the eyes of God are rebellion and darkness and destruction. It's so difficult to be able to see the world the way that God 
teaches us to see the world through his word. It takes hard work. It takes daily being in his word. You know, because think about how many things do you do in life that are motivated by the same things that are motivated King Ahasuerus. To make yourself look more glorious and to get people to do what you want them to do according to your agenda. So much of our life is lived that way. There are so many things in our lives that our culture affirms and honors and rewards that the Lord would have us separate ourselves from. There are so many things that God honors, that God blesses, and God desires for us in this world that we will not have any part with because we don't want to pay the price from the people in the world around us. We've got to pray for God to open our eyes to our cultural blind spots. And we need to be continually correcting our perspective by prayerfully being in the word of God. Secondly, the second lesson is to be faithful while in exile, God's people must trust in God's providence. Trust in God's providence. That's a great doctrine of scripture, the providence of God that we don't talk about much. Back when our culture was heavily biblically Christian in its worldview, they talked about providence all the time. Go back and read the the statesmen from 200 years ago. They talked about providence all the time. We talk about it so little. Part of seeing things from God's perspective is seeing his providence at work. And you'll see it all through the book of Esther. Yahweh isn't mentioned in this book by name. But he is behind the scenes orchestrating every detail of everything that happens. The events of chapter 1, we are going to see, you know, you read chapter 1 and say, what does this have to do with anything? Yeah, it's a kind of a cool story, but what does it have to do with anything? We're going to see that the events of chapter 1 are going to set the stage for two insignificant Jewish people, Esther and Mordecai, to be elevated to positions of incredible influence, to be useful in God's hands to deliver his people from destruction. And what happens in chapter 1 is God at work to make that happen, even though he's not named or mentioned in any way. The story of Esther is a complex illustration of that biblical theological principle that we call providence, which was stated clearly in Scripture by Joseph, a man who knew a lot about providence. Remember Joseph? He's the guy who was sold into slavery by his brothers. Attacked by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, thrown into prison. But yet, by God's providence, he ends up being the second most powerful man in the Egyptian empire. And you remember how he put the doctrine of providence in in, in relation to his own experiences? He said, you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. That's the story of Esther. What sinners, pagans, meant for evil, God intends for good, to bring it about that many be delivered alive. 
The Westminster Confession of Faith defines providence in these exalted terms. It says, God the, create, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all his creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. The providence of God is all over the book of Esther. God is behind everything. Without being responsible in any way for the pride, the lust, the drunkenness, the cruelty, and foolishness of the Persians in this chapter, God still sovereignly orchestrates every detail to accomplish his good purposes, which is, and his good purposes are focused upon his covenant people one commentator said that the main point of the book of Esther is that God normally fulfills his covenant promises through the works of providence. I kept running that through my mind this week. God normally fulfills his covenant promises through the works of providence. We tend to think, and we all, rightfully so, focus upon his great interventions in history. The supernatural, miraculous interventions of God in history, like the flood, or the plagues in Egypt, or the exodus through the wilderness, or the events at Mount Sinai, or the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, or his resurrection from the dead, and certainly those are the most important historical events to the plan of redemption. But the point that the commentator makes is that 99% of history is God fulfilling his covenant promises through normal providence, not through miraculous acts. That puts us in the same category as Esther. God, does, God doesn't show up in some supernatural intervention in the book of Esther, but he's there everywhere in the events of Esther through his providence. He's working behind the scenes today to fulfill his promises in the mission of the church and the spread of the gospel. And faith, faith is in a very real sense seeing things from God's perspective, particularly seeing God at work through his providence to fulfill his promises. And faith means trusting him when you can't figure out what he's doing. I am certain that Esther and Mordecai had no idea what God was doing in the events of chapter 1. But he was setting the stage. We're praying for persecuted believers, particularly in China recently, for what the persecution they're going through. And we talk about them and almost sound like we're pitying them for the suffering they're going through. But when you read what they're saying, they're not talking the way we're talking. They're talking like God's doing something here. God's doing something great. He's setting the table. His providence is at work. It brings me to the final lesson from chapter 1. In order for Yahweh's people to be faithful while in exile, we must be seeking God's king and God's kingdom. That's going to be the great contrast. As in so many portions of the historical narratives of scripture, the earthly kings play major roles in the story. Almost like they're always there as a counterpoint to Yahweh's king. As we study the character and actions of the most powerful ruler in the ancient world, the, the emperor, so to speak, of Persia, we're intended to be so fed up with him, so disgusted by him, so 
turned off by the way that he treats people, the way he lives, the foolishness of his life, that we say there's got to be a better king. I want to serve a better king than that. And if we're going to see the world, to see political events, social political reality around us, if we're going to see it and see the hand of God at work, then we need to have a scriptural perspective. And one of the most important passages in that regard is Psalm 2. Let me read Psalm 2 to you. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That is the backdrop to all human history. That the kings of this earth show their glory to gain their followers. And yet, he who is seated in heaven on the throne laughs. And he says, I have set my king on my holy hill. The king of my people. The king of the universe. The Lord Jesus Christ. We are looking for ironies and reversals in the story of Esther. And the central one, the central reversal of this story, is that the most powerful people in the world who conspire to destroy God's people are going to be delivered through the faith of a couple of insignificant minority Jewish people in the nation. We must always be looking for those great reversals. And the greatest one in history is when the kings of this earth seem to defeat God's king, Yahweh's king, and yet in that defeat, it was his greatest victory, and by it, he reigns over his people and the universe forever. Jesus was offered the power over all, that was one of Satan's three temptations to him. I will give you power and authority over all the kingdoms of the world, greater than anything King Harris ever dreamed of. I'll give you authority and power over all the kingdoms of the world. All you have to do is come to my side and worship me. And Jesus said, no. Obedience to his father meant going to the cross and giving up his life in our place, dying there and shedding his blood where we deserve to die under God's wrath and punishment. He stood before King Herod. He stood before Pilate. And they flaunted their supposed authority and glory and pomp over him. And then went to the cross and defeated all of the forces of darkness. The early church understood Psalm 2. They understood the message. They saw the events. They were living in persecution as a minority. They saw what God was doing, the hand of providence in exalting their risen king. And they understood it in light of Psalm 2. You know how I know that? Because they quote it in their prayer. There's this beautiful prayer at the end of Acts 4. And in that prayer, they quote Psalm 2 and then apply it to what God was doing in their day 
in the death, resurrection of Christ, and the spread of the gospel. Listen to how they pray. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything within them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Quoting Psalm 2. And then they go on to say, For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The church understood providence. They understood that Christ was on the throne. They understood that nothing could thwart the advance of his kingdom. As Joseph would say, you meant evil against me, but God intended it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, alive forever through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, this book begins with a feast, a 180-day feast to show the pomp and glory of an earthly kingdom. It ends with another feast. Matter of fact, feasts and banquets are a big theme through Esther. It ends with another feast, the feast that the Jews today call Purim. It's the feast where they celebrate God's deliverance through Esther and Mordecai of his people in fulfillment of his covenant promises. I love how it, the, the one quote from what they say about that, that feast when they, they instituted it. In chapter 9, verse 22, they say, The days that had been turned from, for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness. Purim is just an Old Testament shadow of what we call Easter, the ultimate deliverance of God's covenant people. We conclude the Lord's Prayer with these very familiar words, and we say them too lightly too often. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Don't ever say those words lightly. That's a powerful statement. You are standing with your risen King, Lord Jesus, claiming his reign over the universe and identifying yourself as one of his people bought with his blood. It's a powerful statement of identity and a powerful statement of loyalty. And as Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior and our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Esther. I pray that you would give us the ability to interpret it well and to apply it well to our lives. We have so much in common with these brothers and sisters of faith so long ago. Father, help us to see our cultural blind spots, but more importantly, help us to see Christ risen from the dead reigning on the throne in heaven and coming again to bring to completion his covenant promises to us. Thank you for how we see him at work in our day, even in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.